Thank you, ladies. That was wonderful. I was just thinking, I've been meditating the last few days. I've been kind of taking a, a portion of the day and going through the book of, of Luke. And it takes about, if you read it, kind of straight through with a little bit of time. You can't take too much time on too many verses, but you can get an overview of the book of Luke in about three hours and 20 minutes. It takes me about three hours and 20 minutes if I just stay steady, stay through. Now, I'm the guy that's like, I get sucked in by some verses, you know, and I want to stay there for like a little bit of time. But I've just told myself, no, I want to get the bird's eye view. I just want to, I want to hear the whole story again from beginning to resurrected end. I guess it really doesn't have an end yet, right? He goes on and on and on. He died, buried three days, raised from the dead, ascended into glory at the right hand of God, and is returning to rule over all. That's the gospel. Amen? It is the birth. It is the death. It is the resurrection. It is the current reign, and it is the coming reign. But anyway, so I'm preaching, but I just wanted to get that big picture of, Lord, I want to I want the whole story again of your love for us. I want the whole story again of your passion for us, of the Father sending and giving his Son, and the Son living the perfect life, and then the Son giving his life for us. And I was just reminded of when Jesus, and they put him on the cross, at least in the book of Luke, the first thing that it says happens when he gets put on that cross, the first words that come out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The first thing. He's lifted up. It says in John 12, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all people. He will draw all people to himself. There's the lifting up of the cross. There's also the lifting up of the resurrection and the ascension. But he's lifted up, positioned, and he knows his purpose. The nations are going to come. He's going to draw all people to himself. And the doorway that's going to open this up is he's going to forgive them. And he says, Father. I mean, just think of that guard that's putting him on that cross. Think of the Jewish leaders that have been vehemently, vehemently, that's a word, right? Okay, that comes out and doesn't feel natural, but I think that's right, okay? Viciously, maybe that's another term. They're viciously accusing him. They're stirring up the crowd. Pilate's like, let me let this man go. Let me let him go. He hasn't done anything to deserve this. And they're stirring up the crowd. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's like, no, let me give you, like, if it's this custom of releasing a prisoner, let me release Jesus. And they say, release for us Barabbas. And they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him. They take him to Herod. They're accusing him before Herod. They put the purple robe on. They beat him. They take him back. The first words out of his mouth, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. And then I was thinking of his interaction with 
the thief on the cross. It says he was numbered amongst transgressors. And literally, he was placed between two thieves. I mean, Isaiah 53 is just playing out perfectly. It's amazing that in synagogue, that's the one chapter of the Torah that they will not allow to be read. Isn't that crazy? They don't want that one. But it's being fulfilled in perfection, the perfect plan of God to redeem humanity. And one thief is just still in his sinfulness and thievery and in pain, and he just starts cursing Jesus like the rest of them. And this other thief has a moment of clarity, a moment of grace. And he says, what are you doing? We're on this cross because our actions deserve it. He deserves none of this. And then he turns. He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I mean, think of the faith that is coming from this thief's heart. I mean, he must have gone to Sunday school, you know? I mean, he might have had some bad, you know, he did have some bad decisions to lead him up to, you know, carrying a cross to the hill called Golgotha. But anyway, let's pause on that. This faith rise up in his, rises up in his heart. And he recognizes Jesus as the, as the Messiah. He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And you, can you imagine? Jesus turns to him. Can you imagine like the eyes that meet just for a second? Jesus turns to him. I just picture this like turning and like Jesus makes eye contact like, really? This is happening now? Of course, he knew it would happen now. And he says, friend, today you are going to be with me in paradise. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. The mercy, Jesus is lifted up on the cross. Father, forgive them. The thief asks for salvation. And to the very end, Jesus is about bringing Sons and daughters before the Father. And he says, today, this very day, there is a continuum, guys, between heaven and earth. I believe when Jesus said that, I believe today on earth is today in heaven. And I think today, boom, with Jesus in paradise. And I wonder what that thief thought, you know, when Jesus, like, was leaving. <laughs> He's like, wait, 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 what's happening? He's like, don't worry, I'm going to go down there, about 50 days, I'll be right back. <laughs> Just kidding, I don't know how that all worked. <laughs> but, oh, what a beautiful day that was for that repentant thief, right? I mean, it is never too late to give your life to Jesus. It is never too late to turn to him and just go all in. Now, I suggest you do it a little before that thief did it. But still, what amazing, abounding, unending mercy he has for us. Amen? Patient toward, oh, goodness gracious. This is nothing of what we're going to be talking about tonight. But we're singing about the love of God and the ocean of his love. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus, we love you. How many of you guys just, you take those seasons and you're just like, I just want to feel it again. 
I want to know it again. I want to go deeper into it again. I want greater revelation again into your love. And you know, our hearts, sometimes with the weight of this world, with the cares of life, with even just the busyness of life, even being in ministry, you know, a worship leader, a pastor, a father trying to raise his kids, sometimes we have to pull back and we just go, I just need to be refreshed by your love. I need and want and desire and ask for you to encounter my heart again. Is your heart like me? Sometimes it gets a little callous, just a little crusty, right? Gets rubbed a little bit. You feel that callous start to form again, and you're just like, oh, no. Like, melt my heart again before the fire of your love, you know? It gets a little frozen. It gets a little cold. It's like, no, no, I want to melt it again. I'm not crying when I'm reading your word. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not having a tender heart toward those around me. No, no, I say no to that. Jesus, encounter my heart again with your love. Well, that's a great intro into 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <laughs> it actually isn't. But we're going to continue our journey through 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're in chapter 8. We got about halfway through last time. We're going to try to make it to the end. I'm going to do a quick overview, and then we're going to sprint toward the last uh, about five, six verses of this chapter. Chapter 8 begins a section in 1 Corinthians that, that really ends at the very beginning of chapter 11, okay? Paul is dealing with issues of the Corinthians wanting to go back to the temples of Aphrodite and Apollos and to take part in these cultic feasts. It'd be like you growing up and all of your holidays that you uh, uh, celebrate with your family, are in these temples, and they're offering the food to idols. But there's also temple prostitution going on that, that, they're worship, that you're worshiping your God with, and there's also a lot of drunkenness going on. Just a lot of, it's, it's not the best environment for the new believer, <laughs> okay? And they are using their knowledge. They're, trying, they're kind of twisting some of what Paul has said and they're using that. When they first got saved and Paul was with them, he called them out of that lifestyle. He called them away from it. He says, don't take part in this anymore. You've been set apart. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. And now you're called to be light to that darkness and to preach to that darkness and to call others out of that darkness. Well, Paul leaves and the sheep begin to wander back into that lifestyle. And they begin to use Bible verses to justify this lifestyle. And we're going to pick this up. This is verse 1. And we're going to go quickly through verses 1 through 6, and we're going to kind of land in verses 7 through 13. So before we get into this, why don't I pray? As I pray, if you have your Bibles, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses will be on the screen, but it's always good to see it in in your own Bible. Well, Lord, we just ask you for grace tonight. We ask you that maybe in this passage that has been a little obscure to us, Lord, that you would shine your light. 
that you would unfold 1 Corinthians 8. We thank you for the dialogue that went on between the Corinthian church and Paul's faithfulness to be led by your spirit and to bring instruction where instruction was needed. We thank you for this chapter, Lord. And we thank you that every verse, every scripture has been breathed out by your mouth and is profitable for us. It's profitable to to rebuke us and to call us back. It's profitable to encourage us and admonish us. And so we ask you that you would just unfold your word to us tonight and let it go deep inside our hearts. Amen? Amen. All right. So verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Okay? Now that is in quotes, all of us possess knowledge. There was actually a dialogue going back and forth between the Corinthians and Paul and what the ESV and the, and the NASB and a few of the translation put in quotes, they believe these were the, the, the passages or the phrases that Paul and the Corinthian church were debating, okay? So, and we know that all of us possess knowledge, and then Paul in quotes again says, this knowledge puffs up, or this knowledge that you're clinging to is puffing you up, it's filling you with pride. That's what that means. Paul says, but love builds up. It's the first time Paul kind of mentions this theme of love that he's going to carry all the way to 1 Corinthians 13 and put the exclamation point of love in 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, it is the the highest chapter, the greatest verses that we have on love. And it kind of begins here. There's this knowledge that's puffing them up, but there's this love that Paul says builds up, okay? If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, meaning that's pretty self-explanatory. But then it says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Someone saying, I know everything about this, there's probably a little bit more that they can explore about that subject. But Paul says, but here's the turnaround. If anyone loves God, he is known by God and has access to the mind of God. Paul's kind of referencing chapter 2 that we went through months ago. Let's move on. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, now again, this is the argument, the dialogue that's going on, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Okay? These were the two arguments that they were kind of throwing back at Paul to allow them to go back to these cultic feasts and take part in these traditions that they had been called out of. They're saying, Paul, Luna, would you put back up that verse? That was a perfect turn. Paul, there you go. Let's try it again. Paul, okay. He said, Paul, an idol has no real existence. Like there's, there's nothing there. Apollos isn't Apollos. Aphrodite isn't Aphrodite. And we also know from your teaching, from the scriptures you unfolded to us, that there's only one God. There's no God but one. And so they're using this knowledge, again, to go back and take part. Let's move on. Again, we went into this last week, kind of unfolded it. This is just an overview. 
Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So Paul says, these are so-called gods. He's like, I'll give you that. Zeus really isn't Zeus. Apollos really isn't Apollos, as the Greek or the Roman would understand it. Aphrodite really isn't Aphrodite. There's not a goddess of love sitting on a throne. Now, this is incomplete knowledge that they have, though, because in chapter 10, Paul's going to tell them those idols aren't really Zeus. They aren't really Apollos. They aren't really Aphrodite. They're actually demons. Paul makes that very clear in chapter 10. He's like, they are a veil, and the real worship that is being given is worship to demons. And so they're using this thing of, an idol's not really real, and they're not acknowledging the dark, demonic activity that is going on. One, they're trying to justify it. They want to kind of get back in and take part in it again. But Paul is arguing with him. He's like, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you, we'll, we'll talk about this. That although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods, quote, unquote, lords, and there were many, the Greco-Roman, the main gods, there were about 17, 18, and they had a lot of sub-gods. There were many gods, many idols, as they knew. We talked about last week how in India right now, they worship about 33 million gods. That's what Hinduism recognizes, about 33 million gods. (laughs) That's many gods and many lords, right? And we talked about my friends who are in Varanasi. And it's this place where they take the dead to like the mouth of the Ganges River and... And if they die in this city, and if their ashes are burned and poured into the river, they believe they can skip reincarnation and enter into nirvana. So what a great place to birth a healing ministry where all of India are sending their dead to die. Isn't that wonderful? They're going, if I can get to Varanasi, if I can die there, and my ashes get poured into the Ganges River at that point where Varanasi came out, one of their gods, where she emerged, then I can skip reincarnation, go right into nirvana. And so these, these, these sick are traveling, and, they're, and they have just these like makeshift hospices all over Varanasi where people come to die. So right when they die, they can be buried. Guys, let's start a team from the rock. Let's take a ministry trip and let's go lay hands on the sick and see them recover and say, guess what? Those 33 gods, those 33 million gods that you've been worshiping, they're demons. But there is one God and there is one Lord. Let's move on. Verse 6, yet for us, Paul's now, Paul's, now he's like, okay, I'm going to agree with you. There is one God, okay? And of course that is true. He says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Again, one of the most precious phrases, right? We have one God, and he's what? A a father. Let's all say it together. There's one God, and he is a, he's a father. It was the main revelation Jesus was sent to teach us, was sent to model 
that there is a father in heaven. He is our father in heaven. He's a good father in heaven. If we ask our good father, he will give us the Holy Spirit from heaven. Just pray to our father. He's like, I'm going in his resurrection. He was with him. And he tells him, he's like, I'm going back to my God. But he doesn't stop there. I love that he doesn't stop there. He goes, I'm going back to my God and, or to my Father and to, to my God and to your God, to my Father and to your Father. Isn't that wonderful? So he's a Father and everything came from him. All things. Everything we see, everything we touch, it all came from him. And I love that phrase, we exist for him. I was just meditating on that today. And oh, 1 Peter chapter 2 just like surfaced from the word. Let's just read this. Talking about we exist for him. Our lives are for him. We are made for him. We find our purpose in him. Peter says this, 1 Peter 2 verse, did I put this on? Yay, good, there it is. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Speaking of the people of God. Then he says this. You're a people for his own possession. Now this harkens back to Deuteronomy, to Leviticus, when God claimed Israel, brought them out of Egypt with power, out of slavery, into freedom, out of darkness, into light. It was just pointing to the cross, pointing to Jesus' deliverance of us. And then he brings them to a mountain, and he says, worship me. The whole reason the Lord brought the children of Israel into the wilderness was just to worship him, was just to make much of him, was just to glorify him. He's like, they exist for me. And then he declares over them, you are my special treasure. That's what it says in Hebrews. And that's what's correlating to here, a people of his own possession. I think the Hebrew word was the segu law of God. And it meant a special treasure. uh, like, a, like a diamond or a precious jewel in the hand of the Lord. And so we get to be his own possession. And why did he possess us? This just gives our life so much purpose, so much, ugh, just makes me want to do that. Ugh, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter goes on. He says, once you weren't a people. You had no identity. You didn't know who we are. You were aimless. This is much of the world. This is much of Castle Rock. This is much of the front range, not knowing who they are. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I just love that. We are his possession. We exist for him to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. In sickness, we proclaim the excellencies of him, that he's our healer. When we slip back into sin, we repent and we proclaim the excellence of him. He is our righteousness. In depression, in loneliness, when we begin to feel those pulls on our heart, we proclaim the excellencies of him to our own soul and to others who slip into that. No, 
He is your hope. He is your refuge. He has made you and formed you specifically for him, for his plans and his purposes. Get your eyes off yourself. Put them on the Lord. In lack, we proclaim the excellencies of him that he's our provider. I mean, we could just go on and on. Set apart, well, first, one God, he's a father. All things came from him and we exist for him. Let's go back to that verse, Luna. I didn't finish it. Verse 6. Uh, one back, if you don't mind. There it is. And one Lord. So we have one God and we have one Lord. I love that Paul, in the same sentence, like, there's no, like, he doesn't have to explain this. He's like, we have one God and we have one Lord. And he speaks to them of equal authority. And he's Jesus Christ, through whom all things came. It was in God's heart to create. They came from God, but he uses his agent of creation, the word of God. And Jesus speaks forth everything into existence. Through him are all things. And through whom we exist. We could not Live for God without living through the blood and the intercession of Jesus Christ. Anyway, this is just a great verse. One of my favorites in all of 1 Corinthians. And so, we went in depth to that last week, and let's move on. Verse 7, it's kind of new territory for us. So Paul kind of jumps back and he says, However, not all possess this knowledge. And what he's saying is like, not all all of the Corinthians possess this knowledge that we're talking about. But some, through former association with idols, they had come out of this world of worshiping idols. They're eating food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is being defiled. So he's saying, you're claiming this knowledge And this knowledge that you're claiming that the Corinthian church has, not all are walking in this that an idol has no existence and that there is only one God. And he's speaking to maybe new believers in their midst, immature believers in their midst. And he's saying, they're going back into that temple under your example and even by your leadership. And they're not quite convinced yet that Zeus isn't Zeus. They're not quite convinced yet that Aphrodite is an Aphrodite. They need a little bit more teaching. They, didn't need, they need a little bit more being seasoned in the faith. And they're actually eating to an idol. And they're actually taking part. And they're conflicted and their consciences are being seared. And they're being defiled. Let's move on. Verse 8. Paul says, food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, nor better off if we do. Paul's just taking a step back. He's like, guys, this isn't about the food that they're eating in the temple. Food is nothing. It's not the food. It's they're putting themselves back in that dark, occultic, demonic presence. And they're sinning against Jesus. This is what they're they're going, Jesus, I'm sorry that I'm doing this. Verse 9, Paul says, But take care that this right of yours 
does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So now he's getting to his real point. He says, well, I'm just going to read the whole thing, then we'll go through it a little bit. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have, if, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, Paul's being a little facetious here, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And the idea is to do the same. And if his conscience is weak or he's an immature believer, to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed the brother from whom Christ died for, died for, or the brother for whom Christ died. So let's backtrack just a little bit. Paul says, your Corinthian church, believers in this church, you're claiming a right that you have. He says, but take care that this right of yours, other translations I think use freedom, take care that this freedom of yours or this liberty that you're claiming you have they don't really have this liberty, but they're claiming it. They say, he's saying, take care that this freedom of yours doesn't become a stumbling block to weak, immature believers in your midst. For if anyone sees you have this knowledge, an idol's nothing, and there's only one God, and I'm going to go to that cultic feast and no one can tell me that I can't, Paul says, You're putting a stumbling block before your brother. Your knowledge is actually causing you and encouraging these young believers to go back into that world. And going back into that world is destroying them, Paul says. The influence of the temple prostitution, the influence of the drunkenness, the influence of that revelry and that debauchery That influence, they weren't mature enough to handle. And in that influence, they were falling away. He says, and so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. So, my next slide, this is kind of the equation Paul is doing. Paul is saying, you're claiming rights, you're claiming liberty, But your liberty that you're claiming, plus your incomplete knowledge, plus, go all the way back to the beginning, you're not walking in love. You're not seeking to edify those around you. You're trying to use biblical knowledge to justify going back to sin. He said, this whole thing is equaling destruction of immature believers. Now, that's a pretty serious matter, isn't it? You guys can say, yes, that's a serious matter. (laughs) And Paul uses the word destroyed. Now, this is a serious word. And Paul is warning them that they are setting up their believing brother to possibly fall away. Now, maybe it wasn't going to be that day. Maybe one time back into that environment, they weren't going to fall. Or maybe not that one festival. But the continual practice Paul is addressing of going back to darkness, okay? Now, you can just put that in your life for whatever darkness God has delivered you out of, okay? If you begin to justify, if you begin to even use Bible verses, if you begin to 
to, to make the argument, oh, it's not that bad. And you begin to set, your pla- set yourself in that place of being influenced by darkness. This scripture is telling us that eventually you will be destroyed. And it's also telling us if you influence another person to go back into that place of darkness, to go back to that sin that they were freed from, to go back to that bondage, that they might be destroyed, the very person that Jesus came to die for. That's pretty serious, isn't it? I was just trying to think of a modern comparison, a modern example. And so say that there's a person and he has a glass of wine with his meal, but his friend is a former alcoholic, okay? And his friend has had a real hard time overcoming an addiction to alcohol. Now, the person that's having a glass of wine with his meal doesn't ever overdrink. He claims, this is my right. There isn't, there, there, there isn't uh, anything wrong with this. I'm not getting drunk and da-da-da. And that's, all, and that's all true. But he knows his friend's an alcoholic. And his friend, after he eats with him, his friend actually has a, has a glass of wine as well. But it doesn't stop there for his friend. His friend goes home and continues to drink and gets drunk. And say that drunkenness in the past for this friend opened this friend up to sexual immorality. And this friend takes part in sexual immorality. Okay, so now the alcoholic is repenting. He's like, Jesus, I, I am sorry. I don't want to turn to this again. Forgive me. Well, say you were that person that had that glass of wine. Say you knew about that whole scenario. And he came to you and he repented to you and he's like, I, I'm sorry. And I was, I was just, I'm just a little weak. I'm a little Ill, immature in handling alcohol. And, and say he came to you and said that and you're like, oh, that's okay. The Lord forgives you. And, but the next time you have him over, you don't change your ways. And you have that glass of wine. And say, actually, you encourage him to, oh, you won't, you won't fall again. It's okay. Just have a glass of wine. And that whole cycle happens again in this other person's life who is the alcoholic. Now, you could use your knowledge to say, it's okay for me to have a glass of wine. It's okay to just, like, a glass of wine is nothing to me. Jesus drank wine, da-da-da-da. You know, you could use those. You could use that idea. But would your knowledge be filling you up with a pride that could be destroying your brother? And everyone says, yes. What would love do? Love would want to build that person up. Love would want to edify that person. Love would want to keep that person away from any of those influences. Love would prefer that person's weakness above their own strength. And that's what Paul's addressing here. It's like you're not walking in the midst of your church with immature believers with love, you're allowing your knowledge to justify your former lifestyle. Now, there's probably many other better examples, but that's just the one I was, I was thinking about the last couple of days. That wouldn't be love, right? And everyone says, no, 
<laughs> I think there were other implications for Paul. I think he was also thinking of the example that this was causing the greater community of Corinth to think about the Christians and to think about the believers. They were seeing Christians and they were returning to their former ways of life and they were in this setting of worshiping idols and temple prostitution and drunkenness. And and by their example, maybe some of the other Corinthians were going to in the future take the name of Jesus but continue to worship other gods because of the example of these quote-unquote mature believers. Now, they really weren't mature believers. Paul's using that kind of facetiously. And then at the end, they wouldn't believe that there was only one God. They would believe that this polytheism that they came out of, this belief that there are many gods and there are many ways to eternal life. And so there were probably some social aspects that Paul was addressing here as well. Okay, we're coming to an end. How many of you guys, you guys understand 1 Corinthians 8? Like, I mean, you're, you're experts, right? <laughs> okay. Is that clear? Any questions before we wrap this up? Wow, okay. You guys are either really want to get out of here or the Holy Spirit communicated all he wanted to communicate. Verse 12, we'll end with this. Paul says, let me just read the the last verse just for context. He says, and so by your knowledge and by your example, basically, this weak person is being destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now this is the main thing Paul is trying to communicate. He's saying, you're leading your brothers into destruction and you're sinning against them whom Christ died for. But in sinning against them, you're actually sinning against Jesus. You're actually hurting Jesus. Now, this is what Mike took us through a few Sundays ago during communion. It's this understanding that we all partake of the body and blood of Jesus. Through putting our faith in him, through taking the Lord's Supper, through trusting in him for our salvation, through being filled with his spirit, we have been united together in Christ. I mean, Paul, it's one of his main messages in the New Testament. We are in Christ. We are one in Christ. There is one spirit. There is one father. There is one body. There is one baptism. Ephesians 4. 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to get into it. There's one body. It's not a separate body. And Ephesians 1, who's the head of that body? Jesus. He's the head. He's on his throne in heaven, and by extension, we're his body. Ephesians 1, it says, and we're the fullness of him, which is just a mystery, the fullness of him who is filling the earth, who is filling all in all through you, through the church. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, guys, a man leaves his wife, leaves his wife, sorry. <laughs> that's not scriptural, that's not true. Don't say you heard that here. A man, <laughs> oh, it's just good for those comedic moments, right? 
a man leaves his father and mother and he clings to his wife and the two become one. And then Paul says, amen, that is a good, that's a good thing and that's the truth. But then Paul just steps back just for a moment and he goes, but I'm really speaking about Christ and his church. And then he takes a step back into like this side and says, but... Wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, serve your wife as Christ served the church. But he just makes that phrase that I'm really speaking, this mystery is really speaking about our relationship with Jesus, that we are one with him. And so with all of those pictures that the word of God gives us, with all of those truths, those aren't just pictures, those are realities. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of of Christ. He is our head and he is our bridegroom and we are one with him. Now in this mystical union, then in an actual union in the resurrection. Hallelujah. His body is going to become our body. I wonder if we'll be able to do the walking through walls thing. I really want to do the disappearing thing on the road to Emmaus. Just being in the book of Luke, I've been reading that. I was just like, you have such a sense of humor. Just walking with them on the road. No, what's this thing about this Jesus of Nazareth? You don't know? No, no, tell me about it, you know? How fun is Jesus? Until he says, you slow of hearted to believe. <laughs> I mean, right then, that stranger, like everything got real for those disciples. They're like, what? You slow of heart to believe all that the scripture have said and prophesied by Moses and the Psalms. Okay. (laughs) I didn't think you knew what was going on. And then it says he takes them through the word of God. How many of you would like to have been in that Bible study? Oh my gosh, Jesus taking them through the word of God. Anyway, all that to say, I want the resurrected body. I can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. We got a lot of cool things to experience now, cool thing to experience then, but we're one with him. Say, great job, Marcus, taking it back to that point. Just kidding. We are one with him, and when we sin against a brother, Paul's like, you're not thinking about this right, guys. You are sinning against the living, risen Lord of all the universe. That Lord that you said there is only one God and there's only one Lord, that's who you're sinning against. He says, wake up. This is what he takes him through in chapter 1. He's like, there's divisions among you. And that word divisions means tears and schisms. Like, they're actually joined together and they're being torn apart. Because they're the body. And the point is, they're hurting Jesus. They're hurting the body of Jesus. I think if we had a little bit more sobriety around that point, given by the Holy Spirit we would be very slow to talk about our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We'd be very slow to position our hearts against them in judgment, knowing that they are connected to Jesus. They are the body of Christ. And in hurting them, I hurt Jesus. We would be very slow to bring and to influence an immature believer towards sin, We want to edify the body of Jesus. 
So hurting our brother is one thing, but hurting the heart of the Lord is something else entirely. And then I was just thinking of how Jesus speaks to this in the word of God. When he speaks to, when Jesus' words, and we're reminded of them and we read them about those who cause offense or put a stumbling block in front of someone who's weak in the faith. We're just going to get a little serious here for a minute, but then we're going to get light at the end, okay? Not light. We're going to go serious, get a little bit of conviction, and then get a little bit of glory after that, okay? So endure the conviction. We're getting to the glory. Endure, endure. Just be a little convicted. Matthew chapter 18. Let's go to, to that passage. Now, this is what was happening in Corinth, and Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 18. He says... Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones or one of these immature ones in the kingdom, one of these children that are coming in, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, those aren't my words. Let's just let that settle. That's Jesus speaking to us. That's kind, compassionate, on the cross, dying for your sins, Jesus But he also says, guys, if you know the passion in my heart for who I died for, you wouldn't mess with this, right? Verse 7, he gets real. Looney, you just had it up. Go to verse 7 of Matthew chapter 18. He says, and woe to the world for the temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But then Christ says, but woe to the one by whom they come. And I don't have it on the board, but right after that, Jesus says for the second time in the book of Matthew, so if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better for you to enter eternal, to enter life crippled, to go through life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. (laughs) So in Matthew chapter 5, he says that. And it has that connotation of like sinning that's bringing yourself into destruction. Here it has the connotation of sinning against an immature one, a child. He says, and he says it in both contexts. One is a personal context, you and me. We enter into sin and one is sinning against one another. And he says, guys, if you knew the passion in my heart, and if you knew, anyway, I think you guys get the point. So, that's the conviction. We don't want to cause one of our brothers, one of our young, immature believers in the faith to stumble, right? We don't want it. But here's the flip side. And I love this flip side. Let's go to Matthew Oh, do I have it? What's my next verse? Oh, good. I don't have it on my notes, but I put it in the slides. Hallelujah. 
Matthew 5.19 says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to get that. That's the kingdom of heaven, okay? Now, Jesus is talking about the word of God in Matthew chapter 5. He says, not one jot, not one tittle will pass away. And he says, and someone in the kingdom of heaven that relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, okay? So he's talking about believers, and they don't make much of the word. They don't make much of obeying Jesus, and they relax some things. They're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does basically these commandments, that's what Jesus is saying, does these commandments and teachings, and teaches them, or teaches, some translations say, teaches others to do so as well, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, we have this promise from Jesus, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, you are going to endure my judgment. But, if you point them to me, and you point them to obedience, and if you have a love for the word, and if it flows from your heart, and if you teach others to do the same, guess what we're going to be called? We're going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In my early 20s, I had a phrase that just, I love to pray. Lord, give me a vision to be great in the kingdom of heaven. I want a vision to be great in your kingdom. Now, that's being great in his kingdom now, and that's being great in his kingdom then. I love when the angel Gabriel shows up in Daniel chapter 9, and then also in Daniel chapter 10, the angel that is unnamed in Daniel chapter 10. The first thing he says to Daniel, he says, Daniel, dearly beloved of heaven. (laughs) How would you like that to be the first thing out of the angel Gabriel's mouth and the first thing out of the second angel's mouth when you're encountered on this earth? You encounter an angel and say, hey, Daniel, we're talking about you up there. You have the eye of the father. You have the eye of the son. Their eyes are on you. Oh, If I could tell you one thing about your life, Daniel, you are greatly beloved in heaven. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, just kill me right now. Like, take me then. (laughs) Don't let me mess anything up, you know? And then he gives them these secrets and these prophecies. I love what was spoken over John the Baptist's life. I know I'm going a little late. We'll be done in just a minute. Luke 1, 13 through 17 says this. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong wine, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That right there, that statement, he will be great before the Lord. This got a hold of me when I was a young man. Let's actually finish it. Let's go to verse 16, the one verse right, the slide right after it. 
So he'll be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go forth before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This statement spoken over John's life, I mean, there's been seasons where it's really touched me. I remember being a young man, and that phrase, that he will be great before the Lord. And I just began to have this dialogue with the Holy Spirit. Can I pray that? (laughs) Can I actually ask for that same thing? Can I be great before your eyes? And I love how we are great before his eyes. Verse 16, we turn many to the Lord their God. It's the same thing in Matthew 5. We teach the commandments and we teach others to obey Jesus. We turn people to look and to glory and to gaze upon Jesus and to cry out to him in prayer for salvation, to declare their love to him. Guys, I don't care about being great before the eyes of the world. If I did, I'm living my life very wrong. (laughs) I want to be great before the eyes of heaven. I want to be great when I stand before him. I want my name to be mentioned around his throne even before I get there. Oh, Marcus, like Daniel, we've been talking about you. The other way to greatness is what do we have to do? What do the scriptures teach? We have to be prideful and set ourselves above each other and climb to the top and put each other down. Is that what the scriptures teach? No. What does it teach? The greatest in the kingdom will be servants. Just like Jesus is our example. The greatest of all was the servant of all. Became obedient even to the point of death. Therefore the Lord exalted him and sat him at his right hand. And at his name, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Guys, the way to greatness is going low in this life. The way to greatness is when you stand before the Lord, you come in and he doesn't say, I never knew you. He's like, oh, I've known you for years and years and years. We've been talking. We've been dialoguing. You've been following me. You've been following my voice. You've been immersing yourself in my word. Oh, here's one that I know. Come. You rule over five cities. You rule over ten cities. Come. You who are faithful with little, I'm going to make you much. Isn't that what we want? I believe the word of God teaches us we can have a vision for greatness for our lives before his eyes. But... It's not taken the way we take it in the world. We enter into greatness before heaven's eyes by loving his word, by serving others, by obeying radically when he speaks to us. Amen? Last verse, 1 Corinthians 8. I told you we'd finish it. (laughs) Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's saying this is the attitude we need to have. If something is making our brother stumble, then the precious nature that they are to the Lord and that he died for them and that you're actually serving Jesus, you actually give up your rights. And that's what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about, the laying down of our rights for the sake of the gospel. Okay? So come back next week and we'll get into 
1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you wouldn't mind, let's just stand. I'm just going to pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, I ask, one, that you would keep us from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Where we are tempted to justify our lives and be pulled back into darkness, I ask for grace to recognize that and to say no to that in Jesus' name. And Lord, I ask you that we would walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, concerning everyone around us, that we would make it our aim to build one another up in love and not encourage anyone to step back into darkness. Lord, we want to encourage everyone around us that you love to pursue righteousness and to pursue your kingdom and to get lost in your love. We want to push them to you, and we ask you for grace to make disciples. And Lord, I pray that we would have a vision to be great before you, that we would have a vision for your word, that we would have a vision to obey your word, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but not do it. Lord, I ask you that we would be doers of the word. As James says, that implanted word would rise up and produce fruit because we wouldn't just hear, but we would do. And Lord, I ask you for grace to turn many to you. If you gave it to John the Baptist, you will give us access to this as well. We want to be great in your eyes and we want to be filled with your spirit to turn many to you through the gospel. So I ask you for all those here tonight and all those listening online that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and let us be those ambassadors of Jesus that you have called us to be, ambassadors of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.